0: Costs to originate keep rising, even with more technology in the industry. The problem is the core platform. A new LOS can re-architect the process around data, not humans moving paper files. Vesta has built this LOS, and you can learn more at Vesta.com. Welcome, everyone. My guest today is Ted Tozer, a non-resident fellow at Urban Institute, and of course, the former president and CEO of Ginny May from 2010 to 2017. We'll be talking about liquidity issues for independent mortgage banks, expanding down payment assistance programs, and Ginny May's role in ensuring that IMBs can weather the next recession. First, here's a word from our sponsor. Hi, I'm Sarah Wheeler, editor in chief at HW Media, talking to Desmond Smith, chief growth officer at UWM about SafeCheck. Desmond, how does SafeCheck work?
1: Hey, Sarah, how are you? So I would say first, you know, SafeCheck is allowing. LOs to give their borrowers peace of mind. So I start there. You know, trigger leads have become a very large issue, not just in the mortgage space, but in any time someone's getting any type of credit. So we created SafeCheck to help prevent kind of that uh, aggravation and nuance of receiving, you know, tens, twenties, hundreds of calls that consumers receive. So what happens with SafeCheck is any LO who uses UWM, it's an exclusive product SafeCheck is to UWM, they would be able to either pull a single or tri-merge soft pool credit report. And while that credit report is being used to run AUS, they will have time to opt their consumer out of any solicitations, and then therefore they will not receive all of those annoying calls and annoying solicitations. And that is also a big benefit Because the the cost of the credit bureau is much cheaper by leveraging SafeChat. So it really is a win um, for LOs and it's obviously a win for consumers because they don't receive so many phone calls um, offering all different types of products and services.
0: I can see how that could be a game changer. Thank you, Desmond and listeners. You can find out more at uwm.com. welcome to the podcast.
2: Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it, sir.
0: Well, I really appreciate you taking the time to come on. You know, you just um, wrote a piece called, How Can Jenny May Help Ensure IMBs Can Weather the Next Recession? And I thought that had a lot of really great topics for our audience and wanted you to come on here and Talk to us about that. So I think the first thing to talk about is let's take a, a step back and look at the big picture and why are IMBs, which you know, independent mortgage banks, we, we say IMBs, um, why are they so important for lower income borrowers?
2: Well, I IMBs are really important, I think, not only for low income borrowers, but just overall industry. Because what's happened is we're seeing uh, the banks retreating from mortgages, not only uh, from all aspects, whether it's conventional, whether it's the FHA and VA and rural housing, which again, like you said, is low income. But the, whole, the, the IMBs become really the backbone of all mortgage banking right now, as far as mortgage lending, with the bank's uh, exit uh, from the mortgage space and being taken over by the IMBs. This whole trend started in 2008 with the housing crisis and it's continued to now, I think, like uh, over 90% of all. Effigy and via lending is now done by IMBs, but over 60% of Fannie and Freddie loans are being done by IMBs now. So they really are um, critical to the whole mortgage banking or mortgage uh, infrastructure right now.
0: So, one of the things that um, is pretty top of mind for IMBs is is liquidity, right? We've had several things happen over the last year. Um, You know, you referenced the fact that um, reverse mortgage funding uh, was forced into bankruptcy last year um, because of a lack of liquidity. And then, you know, since then, we've had um, regional banks, you know, uh, bank failures. We've had the Basel III um, changes, which would seem to, Further make warehouse lending you know tighter, so from your perspective, where are we on liquidity?
2: Well, again, the liquidity issue is the biggest challenge because of the fact that um, independent mortgage bankers did not have access to deposits, you know guaranteed deposits we saw it with the banking crisis where all of a sudden you know banks like SVB had runs on their banks that weren't insured by the FDIC. Well, IMBs have no insured uh, liabilities. Their liabilities are all uninsured. So the same kind of uh, uh, situation you, you had with SVB could happen with I&Bs, where all of a sudden the banks or whoever they're relying on for their funding sources could overnight dry up if all of a sudden people get concerned that we're going into a major recession or something. Because we basically saw this happen back in 2008, where the um, access to uh, warehouse lending for Independent mortgage bankers uh, essentially dried up because people were concerned about where housing was going back in 2008. So that's the major uh, concern is not having government insured liabilities um, makes the funding sources very relatively unstable for I&Bs.
0: From your perspective, what could Jenny do here to
2: help? Well, the thing that, that I look at is the fact that Jenny May's charter, when it was designed in 1968, was actually pretty broad. It basically states that Ginny May can guarantee any liability of any uh, organization as long as that liability is collateralized by government insured or guaranteed assets. So it's pretty broad. It really wasn't because basically you to think about it, back when, uh, Mae's May's charter was designed, uh, mortgage banking, mortgage backed securities didn't exist. Uh, Jenny May basically invented the mortgage-backed security back in sixty eight invented the TBA market, everything came around Jenny May. so really when Congress designed Jenny May, it was designed mainly to again bring liquidity to government guaranteed assets by lenders being able to make those loans and then have Jenny May facilitate. The uh, funding, stable funding. So my concern is now is Jenny may should move past uh, the MBS and say, could they be doing it for things like commercial paper and other shorter term uh, liabilities uh, uh, outside of MBS? Because that's kind of what Congress designed them to do in '68.
0: There's a lot to unpack there, you know. So how would how would that program be funded, for instance?
2: It'd be funded by the capital markets. It's basically the best way that I could really describe it is what I'm what I'm really describing is that we'd almost could get into a situation where IMBs would almost have, you want to think about it, almost like FDIC insured type liabilities, where they would issue, you know, six months, one year um, type deposits that would be uh, collateralized by their FHA and VA. Uh, portfolio, real housing portfolios, but it would act very much similar to a bank CD, where instead of being insured by FDIC, it would be insured by Jenny um, May. And by having that guaranteed short-term liability like a CD, at that point, it would be a um, very stable source of funding because um, people would say, you no, know, whether the economy is up or down or no matter who the uh Genie May issuer is, the government would stand behind it. So that way it would be a very stable uh, funding source for the IMBs for both um, you know, loans that they were buying out of pools, uh, delinquents or you know, reverse mortgages because they have to buy them out, or even potentially warehouse lending up front when they're originating loans.
0: Are you seeing a lot of, you know, so so since you wrote this paper, since you um, talked about this, um, what kind of reaction have you gotten and response? Do you, do you feel like there's a big appetite for this on, uh, you know, from the IMB side, but also from the policymaker side?
2: Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, basically, what what I found is that a lot of people have a tough time kind of understanding, you know, the Jenny May structure. What I'm saying is they're so used to being MBS, and once I sit down and explain to them about, really, stick a, take a step back and understand Jenny May's guarantee is not actually issuing the MBS. The MBS is being issued by the mortgage banker, and Jenny May's is guaranteeing the liability, once they understand that, they begin to see how powerful that Genie May Guaranteed be, could be outside the MBS space. But they just have a tough time getting past that point because they're used to basically for the last 53 years, all Genie May's done is guaranteed MBS. So they're, they're kind of stuck in that, that mindset. But once you get past them, Understanding that, then they really become more uh, open to the idea.
0: You know, you list out like six different questions that would have to be answered. You know, if a policy, you know, if policymakers took this up, what are what are those questions? Do you think are the most important?
2: Well, I mean, I think I think the biggest question is going to be: is just you know, how does Jenny May uh, oversee the issuers? Because ever since um, um, Jenny May hired the Federal Reserve to become their paying agent back in the mid '90s the Mae kind of knows where the bondholders are getting paid because the money goes through them, because they basically collect the money and then turn it over to the Federal Reserve to pay the bondholders. So now the question goes back to is what infrastructure they need to put in place. I mean this is not unusual or something that's never been done before. Because prior to the Federal Reserve becoming the paying agent, issuers were their own paying agents on Mae Securities. I mean Mae didn't collect any money until the mid nineties. The, uh, uh, the issuers sent checks directly to bondholders and dealt with them directly. Um, so it's basically Jenny May just dusting off its procedures and policies from 30 years ago to understand how they did that for the first 20 some years of the Genie May program and, re- and redoing, doing that. But again, it's part of this concept that we're so used to everything flowing through Jenny May and understanding kind of what's going on as far as the issuer base. Now they had to go back to being a little more uh, indirect and doing the oversight of their issuers to make sure that their uh, um, liabilities are being paid in a timely manner.
0: You know, let's go, let's go back to the fact that IMBs are doing so much of the heavy lifting on on all the kind of mortgage lending, but especially for um, lower income borrowers for FHA. What are some? How how would this affect that specifically?
2: Well, the way, the, to me, the, be- the beauty of this whole process is the the biggest cost to servicing. A, um, a FHR VA loan is default servicing. And if all of a sudden we can actually create a situation where the cost of carrying that delinquent loan while Jenny May is working through or the issuer is working through the loss mitigation and process, you know, and, and the foreclosure process, it, it could, it could substantially cut the cost of servicing, which enables them to actually feel more comfortable, um, potentially making loans to borrowers with maybe a little bit more um, you know, risk to their credit profile because they know if they go delinquent, they're going to have access to cheaper funding to fund those, uh, delinquent loans. So to me, I think that's one of the things that really the, um, could help the IMBs out because historically banks always had their deposits to fall back on. So banks were always very comfortable with the, um, you know, the January program and being able to use their cheap funding to buy loans out of pools and to uh, work on the loss mitigation. IMBs didn't have that uh, access to chief funding. So it's really cha- uh, affected their ability to financially really support the consumer when they go delinquent.
0: So from your perspective, in this paper, you say that, you know, Section 306G of the National Housing Act. I'm definitely not that familiar with the National Housing Act, but that that Section 306G authorizes Jenny May. Um, to guarantee the timely payment of principal and interest on securities. Um, it, basically, what you're saying here, so in your in your mind, do they already have this authority?
2: Exactly. I mean, like I said, the, when the charter was written back in 68, or the housing act you're referring to, the MBS didn't exist. The whole structure didn't exist. So Congress's whole plan was that really whatever a uh, lender needed to do to raise funding, to be able to support their lending you know, FHA, VA, realizing programs. Jenny May would be there with their guarantee to support their funding needs. So to me, it's it's basically just letting Jenny May work to the full um, vision the Congress had, you know, 50 years ago when they created Jenny May.
0: Do you feel like there's? I'm, I have felt like um, since the Biden administration took over, we've seen a real emphasis on affordable housing on on serving um, lower income. Uh, consumers who might want to be homeowners and so I, it feels like there if there was going to be a time to do this now is a good time you know what are you what are your feelings about that
2: yeah i mean i I, I think I think it's good uh, from the Biden perspective but in reality i I would think that it's also good just in general just for more of a stable housing um, system because again the concept is um, no matter who's in the White House whether it's Republican or Democrat the reality is I and bs are going to be the backbone of the housing sector, just like the savings and loans were the backbone of the housing sector until their, you know, demise in the in the 80s, when the banks really got back in. So, because of that, I really believe that bringing stability to the um, IMBs is critical to home ownership, uh, as we know it in today's uh, in, in today's world. And that's the reason why I think no matter who's in the White House, I think they're going to be for It's because in reality, what I'm doing with this program is it supports not only you know, low to moderate, but also supports veterans. It supports, you know, people in rural areas. Um, so it, it's more of this concept of supporting the middle class in general, because I think the middle class is the beneficiaries of FHA and VA rural, and rural housing type loans. And I think in every year, um, person like it. Plus again, with Jenny May, there's no government money being spent. All Jenny May doing is, is, um, putting their guarantee and the government's getting paid for the guarantee. They get paid a guarantee fee. So actually th- this is a money maker for the government, big time money maker. Um, so from that perspective, I think even Republicans would put their arms around this because it's not a money going out the door. It's actually money coming in the door for the U.S. government.
0: Interesting. So with, you know, given that, so what's the next step here? Like, what is this being, you know, positioned to different people in Congress? Is, it, is this a Jenny May? Can Jenny May start doing this without congressional authority? I mean, what does that look like?
2: Yeah, from, from my understanding, the congressional authority is already there. So now the question is, Jenny May working with the industry to figure out what's the best way to dealing with this? For example, the questions I raised in my blog is, you know, should Jenny May revert back to the issuers being their own paying agents? Or should Jenny May create some sort of a central clearinghouse to be a paying agent for all these securities? Because again, Jenny May's common securitization platform has become such a major point of efficiency in the industry. So should they, should they try to create that for these short-term liabilities or should they do it themselves? You know, issues do it themselves. Those are all the kind of questions I think Jenny works with the industry of saying, how do we do this? Because Jenny has got this kind of this empty canvas. Uh, they have this authority, but Congress was so broad in what they gave them. The question now is how do they leverage, uh, the industry to be able to do, be most effective and as, um, as, as minimal bureaucratic as possible?
0: So I guess my question is like what is the appetite within Jenny Mae to do it?
2: I I think I think it's very high because Jenny Mae knows that the stability of the financial situations is critical. I mean they learned it with RMF. I mean they the with RMF's uh failure, you know, the bankruptcy, Jenny May had to step in to uh take over their portfolio uh and to basically continue, you know, dealing with those customers. And then Jenny May's not really that, you know, they were never really set up to actually be a um, servicer and that all could have been avoided if uh, RMF could have had access to funding. So Jenny may's put in this position where they really had to kind of hold the reverse mortgage industry together by taking over the RMF portfolio but it was all created because they didn't have this authority no they didn't have this in pre-lease. So Jenny mays seen firsthand how this can really help themselves as well as helping out the industry. So I think I think they're very motivated to try to get something that's going to work for everybody in the industry.
0: How prepared do you think, Ginny is for another, you know, if there was a big failure in the reverse mortgage space, if there was, uh, you know, more dominoes falling there?
2: Well, it's, it's going to be a challenge. I mean, they, th- that's the reason why I think trying to deal with these issues where if you can find a um, weak spot in the industry that is an Achilles heel and you have the authority to plug that hole, they're going to want to plug the hole. You know, and it's just just like on the on the um forward side. I mean right now it wouldn't make sense because most of their portfolios are three percent, three and a half percent. But let's say we get down the road five or six years from now and they have loans that are six, seven percent. And um, because basically what I'm talking when I'm talking to um people in the capital markets, this commercial paper could trade very close to treasury bill rates. So all of a sudden if they could if they could be borrowing at three percent. And they've got six percent more mortgages, why would they want to continue to pass through and, and you know pay five and a half, six percent on the on their to bondholders where they could issue three percent commercial paper? my concern is having this in place when we before we have a large scale delinquencies where uh, all of a sudden their ability to have stable funding at really um inexpensive rates could make the difference between um uh, some reverse or afford originators surviving, and I think that's that's key too.
3: So I'm here with Brenda Nath, the leader of Housing Wires HW Plus and events business. Brenda, welcome. Hey. So we're going to talk about Housing Wire Annual for a minute. So I don't know if this event is for you. It's certainly not for everybody in our audience, but it is for the leaders of the housing industry. We have built Housing Wire Annual for mortgage banking, mortgage origination, capital markets, and real estate brokerage leaders. Brenna, give us a glimpse into what the leaders of our industry can expect at Housing Wire Annual.
0: It's always great to know who else is going to be in the room, right? So, I mean, just this week, wrapped up a call with Ginger Wilcox. who is now the president of Better Homes and Gardens Real Estate. That's a great example of someone who's been across the housing real estate mortgage industry. Other great speakers include Baron Silverstein. He's the president over at New Res. Cindy Keith, chief strategy officer at NFM Lending. Alec Hansen, chief marketing officer at Loan Depot. I'm specifically saying their titles and the companies because I think that really lets you have a perspective of, who are the peers in this space um, and really some of the biggest companies out there that you want to kind of mingle with?
3: We're also bringing some of uh, the industry thought leaders and economics and data like Logan Motoshami and Mike Simonson. who are both part of our team at HW Media and Sandra Thompson from the FHFA is also joining us. So Like I said in the beginning, this event is not for everybody in the housing industry, but it is for the leaders who wanna help define the future of mortgage and real estate. If you're interested, check out our website. It's October 10th at the Hyatt Lost Pines near Austin, Texas. Brent, any other details?
0: Uh, It's a great place to bring your family, I would say, but even if it's just your team or coworkers, this is a great spot to bring those people closest to you to either learn about the industry or spend extra time with your family and rest, along with get the knowledge. So let's talk about um, something that you know, was a, a big topic of conversation last year and continuing into this year, which was Jenny May's risk-based capital requirement, right, uh, for companies holding mortgage servicing rights. Um, so, you know, they had they had a rule that reduced the minimum risk-based capital ratio from 10% to 6%, but it put a 20, 250% risk weight on the MSR asset, right? The first deadline was the end of this year, but it's been extended out now to the end of 2024. Do you think the 250% risk weight is still appropriate?
2: Well, I, I think the key thing, I think that May probably needs to kind of look at why they're doing the 250 and, and see if there's another way of getting around it. I think the biggest thing that JDMA is really worried about is that issuers are paying they saw back in, you know, 2020, you know, 2021, 2022, with the one, one fall we had as far as profits. A lot of IMB owners paid themselves big dividends, and their concern was that uh, I think that their concern was that they really should be keeping the money in the company as much as possible, because who knows what's going to happen with these MSR valuations? They're very they're very volatile, and I think they I think they kind of backed into this by trying to keep the capital bases higher in these IMBs um, by putting this really heavy duty. Charge on ROE or on the um, the MSRs, but my concern is should they have done something different by, for example, limiting the amount of dividends coming out of the company, or done something more um, to the point if that's what they were worried about? Because that's all I could think of why they put such a um, incredible um, risk weight once the the MSRs got above their capital. Because my understanding is the 250 kicked in once the MSR was was greater than their capital base. Uh, up to the capital base, the, um, uh, the um, risk weight was substantially lower. So my concern is if they want a bigger uh, capital base, they should talk to people about that, what their issues are, and be more transparent on what they're trying to accomplish. Because I think what I saw with this whole capital rule, it just came out. But there wasn't a lot of transparency in why you're doing it, what they're seeing, what they're trying to avoid, all that kind of good stuff. Because at that point, the industry could have given them some insight into, hey, you know, if this is your concern – how about doing it this way or doing that way, whatever. So I would just encourage uh, the people of Jenny May to try to be, to work more with the industry and not be so just, um, dropping it on them and, and saying, here's something that we think is appropriate. And, um, that's it.
0: I think it's interesting too, when you think about the environment has shifted so much. So understanding like what was the motivation is really important as, as the environment shifts. It was, if it was just something that like is now not as, as big, obviously we're not, you know, don't have people uh, banking a whole bunch of things or paying themselves dividends or whatever. So if you don't understand them, if the industry doesn't understand the motivation behind it, it's harder to get on board when, when the environment has completely changed since 2021.
2: Exactly, exactly. And and, and that, that's where I think is really important for for I think all the for Gene May to really sit down because when I was at Jenny May, I really tried to push the concept that Gen May was partnering with the industry. They whenever we're doing anything, they knew why we were doing it, we all were kind of on the same page and we kind of move forward. And I really think that Jenny Mae needs to kind of do that again where they really sit down and look at their issuers as partners in trying to expand home ownership. Uh, through the various government programs and uh, to, to try to act, act in that way. So, again, my, my encouragement to Jenny Mae is, you know, treat your issuers like partners, not as people that you really have to tell to do, but to sit down and try to find solutions together.
0: You know, another, uh, that segues perfectly into the other thing I wanted to ask you about, which was um, expanding who can offer down payment assistance funds, right? Um, when we talk about first-time homebuyers, we are in such a tough market. And especially if you don't have that, um, you know, cash coming from some equity you built up in a house over the last couple of years, if you're coming into this as a first time home buyer, um, which we know that, you know, uh, we have a lot of younger people now with the millennials, we we just have all these consumers who want to get in and down payment assistance is so crucial, but it's not, you know, who can, who can provide that is limited. Tell me a little bit about that. You wrote a piece recently for the, uh, urban Institute on that one.
2: Yes, I mean, uh, back in the uh, 2008, again, with the idea that the FHA um, program was getting um, taking big losses during the housing crisis, they basically um, passed legislation that not only um, eliminated the down payment assistance if you had any financial stake in the transaction, which meant that if you were the, the realtor, the home seller, they also increased the down payment from 3% to 3.5% in that same legislation. So, because again, they, at that point, FHA saw the fact that there was a lot of sellers that were uh, giving down payment assistance, either directly or indirectly through some kind of shell transactions, you know, sham transactions, and they just raised the price of their home. So basically they were doing 100% loan to values um, because of the increased prices. And so I think that's uh, the challenge. But what I thought was really interesting is I did my research on this blog. I found out that during the George W. Bush administration, FHA pushed to make the program 100% loan-to-value program because their point is, and you think about it, VA and rural housing are 100% programs. FHA is the only government program that requires a down payment. So I thought it was interesting that Republican administration was pushing for 100% loan-to-value program for FHA. So to me, I think it's really interesting. We, I think we should just take a look at uh, the concept is, does the, does the down payment really make a difference? I mean, to me, from my perspective, I think it's very minimal because you think about it, you know, if you put 3% down and you go delinquent, you're not going to have enough money coming out of your sale price and this home price appreciated to pay for real estate commissions, everything else. I mean, it's one thing if you put down 20%, yeah, you could actually avoid foreclosure by selling your house and you'd have enough cash to clear to pay all your, your closing costs. But three or three and a half percent down payment is not going to even come close to covering the cost of, of selling your home. So from that perspective, it really doesn't help anybody uh, really do much. I mean, people say you have skin in the game, but in reality, I think the biggest skin in the game that a, a consumer has is that if, they, if it truly is their primary residence and they're owner-occupied, moving their family is probably the biggest skin in the game. We saw it during the housing crisis. From my perspective, prior to joining Jenny May, I ran capital markets for one of the largest mortgage companies in the country. And I remember in 2008 before I took a job of Jenny May. Um, we, we, what we saw was that people wanted to stay in their homes. I mean, they were, they were desperate. You know, nobody was walking away. Don't people walked away from their homes where people had second homes or non occupied. They were me on the keys in. We did not see people me on the keys in. And what I thought was also interesting too was there was a survey done, I think in like 2009, and the average American had no idea what the equity of their home was because the fact, unless you're trying to sell it, you don't know. And the average American actually thought they had equity in their home back in 2008 and 9, but they didn't. Because again, it's, it's no, nobody uh, really understands or even cares what their equity is unless they've got to sell their home. So to me, I think the, the concept of down payment is way overblown. Um, and so that's really another reason why I think we should really evaluate this whole discussion of down payment assistance, who can give it and you know, also to the value of, uh, of down payment.
0: I think also, you know, you you pointed out in in that report that the circumstances are so changed now. So part of the reason that that was made was because of the way that lenders were were structuring things and how they were benefiting from that. But these days, that's that's not something that they could do anyway. Could you talk about that a little bit?
2: Yeah, I mean, I mean, basically back in uh, two thousand, you know, five, six, seven. Uh, so when I was a lender, I mean, the uh, praises were really beat up big time. I'm trying to make sure that they always got a appraisal that matched the sale price of the home. I mean, it was incredible. I mean, you never saw an appraisal below the sale price, no matter how outlandish the sale price was, because the appraiser knew that if they did that, they would never get another deal from the realtor or from the lender. Um, but then we, we, we had this whole, um, overhaul the system during the housing crisis with, you know, appraisal manager companies and so forth to try to insulate the individual appraiser from any kind of um, coercion from the realtor or the lender. And so we made a lot of uh, progress toward really the lender really has very little um, input into what the appraisal is. Um, and that's another reason why I think that this whole concept of of uh, not allowing uh, lenders to give down payment assistance doesn't make any sense again i i think the sellers and realtors should be precluded because again they do have uh, an ability to possibly uh inflate that um sell price and actually manipulate to some degree but the lenders don't i mean if when the lender actually gets the uh, application the sales already been negotiated it's already done and they're they're just basically processing the uh uh, basically information at that point that's available to them. So, uh, that's where I think Congress should relook really at this whole issue of down payment assistance and open it up to, um, FHA to, uh, do more as far as, um, down payment assistance or go back to what the Bush administration recommended and basically al- allow 100% financing for FHA.
0: Again, to your point, I mean, um, the, you know, this is already allowed for uh, VA, for USDA, um, and and for some other folks. So it just seems like this is sort of the um, low hanging fruit. Like it's not hard to understand or, or understand how it works.
2: And especially what we've seen with VA, the VA loans have actually performed pretty well. I mean, they're they, they perform a little bit worse than Fannie and Freddie, but not a whole lot worse. And they're hundred percent the value. And the key, I think, what that shows is it's not the down payment. It's how you underwrite the people. Mm-hmm. I mean, again, it's back to my comment. If the people never, if our never misses a payment, he's never going to know what their he or she's never going to know what their equity position is. So to me, it gets back to this concept: as long as you're doing a quality job of underwriting, the the down payment really is not going to affect whether a person goes delinquent or not.
0: How optimistic are you that some of the things you're talking about this year, or say just even the last two months, these, these things we've talked about today, how optimistic are you that by the end of the year, we'll see some progress here?
2: When it comes to down payment assistance, probably not much, because the biggest problem we see is so many people still believe this concept of down payment makes a big difference. And, and it really is interesting. I mean, when I talk to people and they kind of ask them for, um, you know, hard facts, they really can't come up with them, but, it, but it's this feeling, again, I keep hearing all the time is, you know, if a person has skin in the game, they're going to be more motivated to make their payments when they get into trouble. But again, it's, 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 it's like, um, and, it's just this mindset that I think a lot of people have. And I think it's, it's just, I think getting past that, uh, is really the, the critical part of really understanding that there isn't a, there, um, But I think that's the challenge that we have in today's uh, world is people are just so hung up on the fact that people should have skinned the game in the home uh, when they buy a home. And um, so from deep down, I I don't see a whole lot. But I thought it was really great to bring it up just because, again, with this whole concept of affordability and so forth, it just seems like we should be always asking that question, just keep pushing it, and maybe eventually we'll chip away at some of these um, people and maybe also there'd be more people academically doing more research to kind of disprove the myth that there's a high correlation between a minimal down payment and um, frequency of, of default. I think that's what we need to prove. You know, does a 3% down payment substantially change how frequent a person goes delinquent?
0: To your point, I mean, that the, what the VA um, data shows would seem to uh, would seem to refute that but I think so often when it comes to policy things um, we're always fighting the last war right so this is not 2008 um and and we've put into place so many different things that you know it can never be 2008 again in many ways so very interesting Ted thanks so much for being on really appreciate you and we'll be checking in with you um, in a few months to see where we are on any of these
2: I appreciate it. Thank you again for this opportunity to talk to him about my blog. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to Housing Wire Daily. If you haven't already, we'd love for you to take a minute to rate the show and leave a comment. And make sure to tune in tomorrow for more news and insight.